Arts Leaders Podcast, episode number four. This episode is with Aaron Dati Ghosh, who is the executive director of the India Foundation for the Arts. And this interview was recorded in Malta at the World Summit on Arts and Culture in Valletta in October. Having spent 10 years in the corporate sector, Arundhati joined the India Foundation for the Arts as its first fundraiser in the year 2000 and was appointed its executive director in 2013. In addition to her expertise in economics and management, arts and culture have always played a key role in her life and she also has a degree in classical dance and is a published poet. Arundhati's energy and enthusiasm is evident throughout the conversation and we chat about her own background, the work that the foundation supports and she offers a valuable insight into cultural diplomacy, arts funding and the politics of culture from the perspective of India. Um, every time I've heard you speak, be it on the stage, in the audience, there's such a passion when you speak and it's, it's almost infectious Ooh. that everybody turns <laughs> around and they're listening, they're very, very engaged. Um, thank you. I think uh, it's not just about being here. I think uh, every day when I look at the kind of work that uh, we support, look at the outcomes, whether they are uh, songs being written, dances being performed, theater being worked on, or film, the kind of work we really support and the kind of work that our grantees make, that's just so exciting. It's hard not to be excited. Um, so I think that's the excitement that I carry. It's uh, the work of the grantees. And so whenever I'm going to be talking about them and their work, it automatically comes through. It wouldn't make a difference where I was, whether I was talking to um, a bunch of students in a university or at the summit like this, or to a group of shop owners in a locality. It doesn't matter who your audience is. That's the words of a true performer. It doesn't matter who my... (laughs) It's just that the work is great. How can you not see it? So maybe I would be pointing to different things depending on the audience. But I would be as engaged because I think each and everybody has something to get from the arts. So, yeah. And you were in the perfect role to support that. Yeah, we have the privilege. We have uh, the privilege to be part of these journeys. And I think that uh, being part of these journeys are as enriching for us as it is for the people who experience the work, the people who make the work. Uh, so we are like, you know, in the theatre there are these guys in black t-shirts who hang around in the background, like backstage yeah. crew. We are like that. So you don't have to see us. The work speaks for itself. But we are that black t-shirt uh, crew that's in the backstage. Doing everything that needs to be done in order so to... So that the work happens. Happen. Yeah. Um, something that you called for in, in your, your um, session, which was called New Approaches, New Directions, yeah. was a new form of funding, um, yeah. independent funding, yeah. and almost like free funding without strings attached. Yeah. Is that the only way to, to support culture, or is it just the best way to support culture? No, I think it's an important, nothing is the only way. There must always be different ways, because different ways um, serve different purposes. So the government, the Ministry of Cultures, the Arts Councils must continue to support the arts because they have the maximum amounts of money. It's our tax money and it must be uh, sort of spent on our uh, cultural expressions. Uh, Businesses might support the arts, other foundations, but also independent funding is important so that when sometimes there are vested interests in why these organizations, these others support the arts, that can be cut out. So with independent funding, what you get is three things. One, that the agenda of what will be funded and what needs funding, what the priorities are, can emerge from the field, from the arts and culture field. 
and as the needs and aspirations of artists change that can change so there's nothing else that will control it uh, no social development index not necessarily political indexes not business and image and all that kind of thing for which brands support uh, you know big concerts and stuff so here the needs of the arts will be of primary importance secondly um, arts people will decide so for example in independent funding for example in our organization our grant programs are reviewed by artists every 3 4 years our each project that comes to us we first review it but then it goes out to experts so from the people so it's uh, actually there's a constant dialogue that happens between um, the foundation and the arts community that we serve the third reason is perhaps in some cases the most important reason is that when you have something to say that neither the state or the market will see nicely um it's often very dangerous then to say those things and what's the support that you get to actually uh, then make those statements through the arts that you do uh, so for freedom of expression and for the right to assert your own agency and voice um independent arts funding is a must what pressure is there on you as an organization the india foundation for the arts to deliver these extra goals these economic goals these social goals obviously the idea of independent funding is a fantastic idea not without its flaws yeah. but it is a yeah, fantastic idea but what pressure is there being exerted on you to to produce these, these results yeah. to produce these results or do you act as a buffer or a bumper between those other forces and the artists to protect yes, absolutely mm. uh more to i wouldn't use the word protect but to enable that there is some space available where the artist won't necessarily have to only think about that i'm not even saying that it's not important for artists to think about that of course they must and they will and they do all the time but to say that funding will be available to you only if you do that so for example you know kafka in his lifetime didn't sell a single book um uh van gogh didn't sell a single painting so if somebody told van gogh that now this painting that you're making has to change the lives of 10 students right now tomorrow morning they have to be better different people it would be really tough for him and obviously it would the, affect the work it wouldn't be the same work that he would he produce. wouldn't walk probably his cut off his other year and run away <laughs> or something so i think it's about uh giving artists the space to do what they do and to believe that the arts has an intrinsic value as well so it may not be possible to measure that the book that you and i may have read last week how it's changed us today but we have to believe that certain things are not measurable we have to believe that certain things cannot be felt immediately like 3 minute noodles certain things take time and its impact will be felt much later in a decision i make about the lives of other people in maybe um, a role that you play in somebody's life in your community in your family in your city we have to believe that the arts does that already um because otherwise we will be constantly using it as a tool and we'll forget its real value its intrinsic value that's the space independent funding provides we the pressure we feel is look we end up the day we don't take money from the government but we do have to raise money from foundations other trusts corporates so corporates now give us a lot of their csr money because the arts and culture has we have pushed 
for it to be part of the CSR agendas in India. So there's no further goal. Supporting culture is... Uh, uh, no. So here <laughs> is the thing. Oh, well. So what's happened is 2% of uh, the money that companies make in profit over a certain percentage in India now, they have to, by law, um, donate. So that's a law. They all have to. Now there's a list of things in which they can support. So arts and culture initially was not there. Then the cultural sector worked together, lobbied, lobbied, lobbied. And some of the leaders ensured that it's there. So it's number seven, eight <coughs> on the list. But what's happening is all every time we go to raise money from the corporate sector, they're asking us the same questions, the social development question, the economic development question. And it's really difficult. So say something with arts education program, you can get away because that's like part of the other agendas, right? But uh, try getting funding for, say, a new um, uh, probably theater piece that you want to put together with the circus people and ballet dancers and classical musicians. I'm just giving you a general example and where you're actually what you're trying to do is that these three kinds of practitioners are learning from each other and trying to create a new form, pushing boundaries, etc. They will not see. It's not enough for them. So those are the pressures. So we have to ensure that we raise enough money for those kind of projects. That we raise enough money for projects that do not have any other index but pushing the boundaries of arts practice itself. And on the other side of that, thinking it from a different perspective, with independent funding, and if you don't look at, it, it might happen mm -hmm. automatically anyway, but if you don't focus on those external um, benefits yeah. of looking at culture instrumentally, if culture has the power to change certain things, and you talked about like creating um, super cities and smart cities when there's not enough water mm -hmm. for people to actually live comfortably, if culture can make those changes, are we obliged to use it to, for the greater good and then that, how does that tie into actually independent funding, which doesn't have a, a, a social that, right? drive behind it? I don't think all independent funding do not have that goal. I think many independent funders choose those to be goals, which is fine. It's just that we haven't chosen them to be direct goals because we believe in the intrinsic value of the arts. We believe that's going to anyway make it happen. Uh, so independent funding per se does not necessarily not believe in those goals. That's one. Two. Um, I think there is enough funding for that kind of work already. If anything, I would say too much funding for it. Um, there's too much prejudging what the arts can do. It's almost as if that we are creating enough problems in the world through trade, through politics, through war, through everything else, and then expecting the arts to heal everything. To fix it. Yeah. And I think that's an um, uncalled for uh, and rather uh, unfortunate demand that we make of the arts that we've gone and created all these problems now let us so i if i can be a little critical the national endowment for the arts in the us uh, jane chu shared this the first day uh, so america makes war in other countries america sends its own citizens to fight in these wars young men soldiers who have no idea how this war is going to affect them they are not prepared to go into this. They're really, really young, young boys. They should be in love, singing songs, and big parties, perhaps. They go into these wars. They come back shattered. And then you use the arts to heal them? What kind of policy is that? What kind of use of the arts is there? And we're not asking any questions about why we make war. We're just expecting arts to heal post the damage that we've done. So there's that as well. And we have to speak as much about that. So 
I think the moment we look at the arts as something that you or me are going to go there and save some other people, we are in danger. I think it begins with saving ourselves. It begins with how we change who we are and the way we look at the world and our relationship with the world. Um, and then learn from each other. Try and create as equitable a place. And by that, I mean giving away power and control. Uh, because the moment you say that the arts is for the greater good, we are not placing ourselves in that greater. We are taking ourselves away from that circle and say, oh, I'm better off. It's these people whose lives I need to change. And that's problematic as well. Is this one of the ways then in which arts and politics are inextricably linked? So by taking the politics away from the art, you can enhance the art. But that also draws attention to how intertwined politics is with art. I think there is nothing in the world that is not political. Every act, everything that you are, that I am, where I stand, where you stand, is a political act. That's my belief, of course. Um, because when you take a stand, when you say yes to certain values, no to certain values, when you make your decision every morning about every little thing, each of those are political acts. We don't do them consciously as political beings. But what is politics if it is not the way you lead your life? and the way you determine what your relationship to the person next to you is going to be. How I speak to you and how you speak to me is politics. So all arts essentially is political like everything else. So I mean I don't understand it when the language where we say let us take politics away. Politics and um, is different from political parties or you don't have to be in a political party to be political. Um, Politics with a small p as they say. Yeah, as they say, yeah. And I mean, so it's it's a way of being, it's a way of life. And so arts is political anyway. So it's making, it's, a, it's expression, it's saying something, it's aesthetics is saying something. Uh, last evening I was in a room full of pictures of dead white men. It said something to situate a conversation of young cultural leaders from all across the world in a room that is on the walls are dead white men hanging, some 17 of them. That is politics. Choosing that room is a political act. If you're not thinking about it, you should. Whoever decided that, you know? Is there any advantage then in trying to remove politics from art or trying to create... How are you going to do it? <laughs> How are you going if, to remove the... politics from mm -hmm. anything is the question. It's like, it's, it's intrinsically related to how you live your life. Is this not what you're trying to do with independent funding though? Is that you're trying to filter out the politics no. to get the pure not culture? At not at all. Not at all. Because I think what you're trying to do is not to um, ascertain a certain instrumentality of the arts to do other things. That's what you're striving not to do. So if the arts is naturally political, that's fine. It is. It's just that you're not putting your view. It is it. naturally political. So what we are saying is that we are not funding the arts because it's going to do good for ABC. We are saying do this. We support your practice because the arts in itself is of value and what it says. Of course you're asking when we say critical arts projects, we are asking critical uh, questions about why you do what you do, what do you want to say with it, what's your expression, what are you trying to push, what are you trying to challenge, what are you trying to critique and all that is politics in some way. Yeah. 
take me back to your um, the beginning of your life and how you kind of got involved because you you were an artist initially and then you got more and more involved in policy. No, no, no. And, I'm not an artist. I, yeah, I was a dancer, yeah, a dancer and I'm still a poet. A poet. But uh, I, I'm actually, I'm an economist and I have a corporate background. The first decade of my life, I, I did my MBA and I was in corporate jobs. And um, I started a company with uh, some other friends of mine at e-commerce time. And I was like feeling like this wasn't it. I wasn't really happy. I was doing so well making so much money and not being happy. Which was art part of your life at that stage? Yeah, or it was. Very much in the background. No, it was. But like it is in anybody's life. Mm-hmm. You know, in India, we all have to learn how to sing and dance and we are kids and arts is very much part of life. So yes, it was. But I didn't see it like differently. And I, I knew I wasn't the best dancer. So I knew I wouldn't be. I've performed many times, but I knew I, that couldn't be a career for me. I wasn't that good at it. Um, Again, poetry, I knew I would always write it, but it wouldn't be a career. Like, I'm not a career poet. So, when I started getting upset with this whole business sector thing, and I was like, so what? I knew I wanted to be non- in non-profit. So, there could have been just two areas that I really felt passionate about. Women's rights and arts. And my first option was women's rights. And then I realized, unless you're a lawyer, or you're... Because I was an economist and like a, like a marketing person, and we don't really have, like... Marketing people don't have skills, they just know how to talk. So I had to have real skills. I could be a doctor or a lawyer, and then I could have gone into women's rights because I could have made a real difference. Um, So I didn't do that, and I just looked around, and I became, 15 years ago, I joined this foundation as its first fundraiser. It was five years old with five people, and I just joined as the first fundraiser, and I was told, you come from business, can you raise funds? I said, I've sold tea, and I've sold... Um, quilts and I've sold bathroom tiles and let's see. But never sold the arts. Yeah, and, and even before I said it, um, the person who was hiring me said, you're not going to sell the arts, right? So I was like, oh, so I can't use the word sell. So that was my first, okay, that's my first learning, unlearn sell. Yeah, but it's been an incredible journey. And what situation was the foundation in at the time when you when you joined? Obviously five years old, very much in its infancy. Yeah. Um, it had made some fantastic grants mm-hmm. already. It had um, it had some initial money that it started with. From so it got some money from the Rockefeller Foundation, from the Ford Foundation, the initial uh, like seed money, uh, the Tata Trust, which is an Indian like large business trust. So it had this little nest egg, and. Um, what uh, uh, the person who was the first executive director, he believed that you have to first have a footprint. You have to make really good grants before you can go out ask for money. Mm. So with that money, they had made some really significant grants. Very interestingly, one of them, one of our first grants, went to Rux Media Collective. 15 years uh, later, like no, 20 years later, today, they are the curators of the Shanghai Biennale, this year, 2016. So you see the impact of So it. that's what you're talking yeah. about. I mean, they're changing and I'm so proud that they are... It's those Indians. success stories that get you so excited. <laughs> yes, that's it. And they are also dear friends. And But they were our first grantees ever. And they are now like curating the Shanghai Biennale. It's like one of the biggest ones that the world sees. And to top it, the thing is taken from a Bengali filmmaker called Ritik Ghatak, who wrote, a, who made a film called uh, Arguments, Counter-Arguments and Stories. That's the theme of the Biennale. I mean, look what happens to cultural dominance that we keep talking about with something like this. That is as important to me as any kind of social development. And that's what I'm talking about. That's why it's political. 
because it's it's a political act to put a bengali filmmaker who talked about partition in bengal up there at the shanghai biennale as an uh, provocation for the entire 140 pieces that are going to be there so and cultural diplomacy cultural relations is something that you talked about passionately yesterday as well <laughs> <laughs> it's obviously another yeah. point that gets you very very excited and oh. um, can you talk a little bit more about what the things you mentioned yesterday about um cultural diplomacy from global north to global south and it being a one way street almost yeah i think see it's very important to understand that uh, we're in the real world where there are power dynamics that have been structured through historical events and situations right that we have created ourselves and and like i say the reason i'm speaking to you in um not in my mother tongue and here is because the british were there for 200 years and that's a language we learned it so happens to be the language that connects all our regions today in ireland the same the same exactly happens the while same. speaking english with you, you and speaking irish english yes. with me yeah. and and a welsh person would say exactly the same exactly. thing but these are given right you can't change this history get over and it kind of thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but having said that once you have that understand that there is dynamics of power at play when you're talking about any relationship so when it's talking about when you talk two nations essentially are talking about trade and talking about aid or talking about security defense these powers come into play we all know that so america will give you something for free but they'll want their military base in one of your towns i mean this is how politics works in cultural relationships this can be challenged because inherently one culture cannot say that it is better than another one country can say it is richer than another but how are you with a straight face going to say that you know how am i going to say my culture is better than yours i can't right so there is the possibility of having equal and just conversations and do you think that's only because the arts can't be measured so the more we try to measure art do you think the more culture comes into that you conversation you have to it yes <laughs> of course of course not just it can't be measured it's also the way you ascertain value to it it's so context driven and yes the value that you attach to it is the value in itself is because it is invaluable invaluable and and, and there's a difference between uh, you know priceless and valueless mm-hmm. right yes. so it's priceless really there's no point trying to tag it with something uh, you actually lose it in trying to capture it um, it's beautiful you know one of one of our uh, musician friends used to say that uh, in the sunny classical musicians play with their hands mm-hmm. when they're singing and it's about not trying to hold the tune it's letting it flow because the moment you hold it you actually have nothing in your hand so it's beautiful and that's with the arts that sometimes we have to let it be and not like put frameworks and i'm not saying we'll be not accountable of course but let's do that through telling stories let's do that through telling experiences of people who have participated in it created it not necessarily through metrics that are used by how many you know bathrooms have i created uh, or how many uh, weaving looms have i put in this village and how many meters of cloth has come out of it to a point but you can't push that yeah so cultural relations i think it's important that nations talk to each other but because they can never beat this problem of power um no man's land i i'm a great believer of no man's land where i think i spoke about it yesterday mm-hmm. where uh, independence from nations should speak parallelly and and that's why it's possible that you know pakistan uh, uh, pakistan and india today 
uh, we need to have that conversation because at, at our governments are just <laughs> crazy. They want war and they are like sort of hyping up even the citizens. But if you look at, at artists want to work with each other and now there's this big thing in India about, oh, you can't work with Pakistani artists. And unfortunately, many of our Bollywood like uh, sort of directors are saying, oh, we are not going to work with Pakistan artists. I think that's criminal. Mm. You cannot say that. You have to stick out your neck and say, no, we will not do that because people in Pakistan watch our films. So we can't say that. So that's what happens when cultural relations become the same as foreign relations. They have to talk culture there, let them talk. Let them figure out what they want to do. But let us also keep talking. You need to be resilient, I suppose, is the, the message. And the session that we just came from yeah. as well with Marina Baram so yeah. from the Al Harati, yeah. she had a fantastic story about yeah. an artistic director for a play that was refused entry. Yeah. So they did it by Skype. Exactly. So they used this technology exactly. to get you over the have physical. To keep subverting, you have to keep doing parallel things, you have to keep thinking alternatively, I think. That's important. Mm. That I'm not saying that stop all that is happening between nations through governments. Let that happen. But also understand that, that there's a limit to what can happen. Because the power structures in this world are not going to change overnight. So if they don't, there's no point waiting for governments to change. Let them do. We'll support them in what they're doing. But we'll do our own little parties as well. You know, the communication between people to people continue through the arts. I mean, I've been to countries like Afghanistan where the first thing I hear is like the name of an Indian Bollywood actor. And I, oh, do you know this song? And I don't know the language, but I can sing a Bollywood song for them. And it's amazing how that happens. So that has to continue. We talked briefly as well about, um, you had a, a very good story where um, people were taught Irish songs and, and dances with no kind of thought process of why. Why this particular one? Why now? Why here? Is there a lack of thought process yes. when it comes to funding? So yes. you get funding for something, you go and do it, you never ask why. No. Because I think what could have been beautiful is it's so easy with technology today. So there are kids there, there are kids here. Kids can talk to each other even if they don't talk to each other. Set them up on Skype. Let them know a little bit about each other. Teach a few songs to them from here. Teach a few songs. Here. Then it makes sense. Then you know what you're trying to build. But it you, needs to be a, a transfer, a, it needs a to sharing. Be a transfer yeah. because the, this whole idea of the giver and the receiver. Mm -hmm needs to change. It has to be mutual enrichment in some way. Um, you were in the leadership thing, right? So Claude uh, program. I wanted to ask you yeah. about that quickly. Yeah. Um, so Sue, uh, give us, like I kept thinking, why do they have these four international people? Like I understand for UK, Claude is not just a great program, very practically. It's a stamp on your CV. It's a stamp on your resume to get the best jobs. Right? Is, that, is that all it is? is there no, it's not. Mm -hmm. But it is a very practical thing mm -hmm. to have. I think that it's a very practical necessity to have that stamp of approval. And uh, But it is so much more. Mm -hmm. It is a brilliant program that actually enables to do your inward and outward journey um, as a leader. Um, figure out what your values are, where you stand, how you relate to the world, all of that. So I was thinking, why international, you know? And she, I had asked her, and she had very nicely explained, saying, this is also about UK talking to the world and the world talking to UK in its own space. Um, and that was incredible. A, for me, um, I have no idea, actually, that, and I've been going to the UK since 2003, I have lots of friends, but 
I didn't know that class was such an issue in the UK still. I thought it's only an Indian problem. Mm. But the fact that the working class actually feels that they're not represented in management and leadership, even in the arts, forget business, even in the arts, was like that diversity was actually such a big problem that the boards were male, pale and frail. I mean, these were things that I thought were Indian crises, you know. I thought Indian women are oppressed and I figured that British women have to wear really high heels to their workplaces. And I was like, I'm seeing you all differently, you know. So, on the other hand, a lot of my British uh, cohorts expected me to be vegetarian, interested in yoga, and really pious. I'm none of the three, yeah. I smoke a lot, I love drinking, I am single, I don't have a family, I am quite sinful in very delicious ways. And that was their sort of understanding what an Indian woman would be like. Mm. And I think both ways we broke stereotypes of who we are. I realized how deeply connected to families because in the eastern part of the world we tend to think that oh these western people they don't care much about family and they're like very individualistic. I actually realized how much they love their kids, how much family means to them and how much they suffer because some of the families are um, because of the many migrations and stuff that's happened across Europe, how much they um, suffer because they don't have family connections or had to move. So I had this friend who's moved from Romania to England during the sort of communist time and she had to leave part of her family there. And all this is like more similarities than differences actually in many ways. So you almost got a culture shock when you went to the, the UK. You saw these things that you weren't expecting. Gave and got, I suggest. Gave and got. Gave and got, yeah. Yeah, it was because a lot of these are stereotypes that are carried by, you know, popular sort of culture, right? And from the films that we watch and it only gives a slice of it. So I think it was great because I I understood also the differences that um, like I keep, we know that India is not one country, neither is the UK. So. A sense that sense one already had because one knew history and one knows how Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England are like four really divergent histories and how that all places itself in today's context and especially in the context of Brexit. Uh, but one didn't have a real like textured understanding of meeting people, the little stories, the little myths. So that went a long way. Yeah. And what role does culture play in building these stereotypes? A lot of stereotypes are cultural and what can we exactly. do to break down the stereotypes in the culture that we export and obviously you've got Bollywood films yeah. and we have Irish songs that we send to yeah. India for no yeah. reason and yeah. you think we're all leprechauns dancing around. And <laughs> I, I, yeah, seriously, some of my cohorts thought that all I did in my spare time was sing and dance around trees. <laughs> I said that you, you don't see that in India, it's only in the films. But um, I think to have the understanding not to see culture as monolith. And I go back to, maybe I spoke about it in the morning. Um, I love this quote by John Berger, which he wrote in 1970s in this uh, book called G, which says, um, I hope I'm paraphrasing it correctly. No story shall ever be told as if it were the only one. That no story shall become a dominant narrative for anybody. So when people would tell me, is this Indian food? Don't tell me Indian, this is Punjabi food. 
or Punjabi vegetarian food. Whereas South Indian food, that's very different from, yes, broadly it's Indian food, but this is not the only Indian food. So for ourselves to be aware, because we, we also play along with stereotypes if it helps us, right? So if I can play the oppressed Indian woman uh, in a white male context, I can get away with a lot. So I'm just giving you an example, but we all play up stereotypes uh, to gain small currencies. That builds new stereotypes. And I think so just to understand that it's not a monolith, it's, a, it's actually a multiple and this multiplicity of voice needs to continue in all our, and it's nuanced, uh, just needs to be built as part of our cultural understanding of each other. You spoke a little bit as well about social media and how that gives rise, it gives a voice to the minorities and it gives voices to the people yeah. on the fringes. Mm-hmm. Is that a positive thing and how has that affected the stereotypes that we're talking about? I think in parts I would be very specific because I think contextually they're very different. So I can only speak about certain movements in India. Like I think for example the student movement that I was talking about, that's, that's right now out there where um, students across campuses are fighting against caste discriminations, gender discriminations, uh, sort of queer discrimination, but it's actually illegal to be queer in India. So they are fighting for that. So um, all of that gets a certain uh, validity as well as connection through social media because all these kids no matter where they come from, they might come from rural areas, but once they come into the universities, they have social media and they're using it amazingly. They're running campaigns. It doesn't matter that mainstream media is not carrying any of this news because this alternative space has been created. Also the question of access, that while some of these stories are available to us because of the digital uh, economy, what about those places where things are happening but we don't know because they don't have access to this? So it remains a complex thing, but overall, I think social media is great giving voice, but it's never enough. Um, It can never, I think, fully um, take away the need for being on the street when you're resisting or dissenting or campaigning or trying to build a movement. The street is very important, but social media can just push it along, I think. Just one final question before I leave you um, about leadership because you did the Clore Leadership Program. You're quite, you speak quite passionately about leadership. How has the discourse changed um, over the last couple of years from an individual holistic leader to being a more collective leadership and cooperation, collaboration, and diversity, which are themes that are obviously running throughout the, the summer? I deeply believe that, um, in a very simple way, this is uh, a learning for me is that we've moved from the guru-disciple kind of leadership, the authoritarian, so I'll talk about the context of India, the authoritarian, older, upper caste, male, heterosexual person. Like, I know I'm making, again, many suppositions in this, but that's a lot of knowledge, knowing all the answers, is the guru, and shall lead. Two, uh, younger woman, perhaps not upper caste, um, questionable class, uh, uh, could be a person who believes in a more collective, what, what I would call a comradehood, 
rather than a guru disciple, so a comrade to comrade kind of collective leadership. So I'm saying, this is the shift that you want. Now we are somewhere in the middle. Uh, many of us have the privileges of coming from families which could afford our education uh, in a way that we are blessed with. Uh, but the leadership that one sees coming out of community movements, whether it's a Dalit movement or it's the gender movement in, in India, is amazing. And those leaders will not fit any stereotypes that you might have. They are collective leaders. They are leaders who represent the voice of people the way many of our politicians haven't. So I think I will call it a shift from the guru school to the comradeship. And I think school and ship are also as important as guru and comrade. So, yeah. Very wise words. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Most really exciting questions. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me and really some, some very valuable insights and enjoy the rest of the summer. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank and you so you much. Too.